Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. Amen. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 Kings. We work on our way through this book looking at the life of Elijah. We arrive at chapter 19 today. Back in October of 1999, a Learjet, twin-engine Learjet, took off from Orlando, Florida, headed to Dallas, Texas. And somewhere over one of those southern states where that jet was supposed to make a a gradual left-hand turn to head to Dallas, the jet kept going straight. They tried to radio that jet, make radio contact with it, and there was no contact. Uh, Fighter jets were dispatched to go up there and see what was wrong, and the fighter pilot said they could see that the cockpit had been iced over. Apparently, the crew had died, and the jet continued to fly 1,500 or so miles until it finally ran out of fuel and crashed into a field at like 600 miles an hour. Golfer Payne Stewart was on that flight, and people were devastated to find out that it happened. And they asked, how could anything like that happen? They don't know why, but the crew and the passengers lost oxygen and died somewhere before that plane was supposed to turn. So the duration of the entire flight of that jet, till it ran out of fuel, was on autopilot. And as I I looked at that story again this week, it just fit what we're going to talk about in chapter 19 of 1 Kings, because you can run out of fuel... But sometimes you don't know you're running out of fuel because there's death on the inside. But ultimately, you're going to run out. And we have the life of Elijah to give us testimony of that. Follow along as I read these first few verses. Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, May the gods punish me and do it so severely if I don't make your life like the one of them by this time tomorrow. Then Elijah became afraid. Isn't that an interesting phrase? (laughs) Then Elijah became afraid and immediately ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba that belonged to Judah, he left his servant there. But he went a day's journey into the wilderness. and He sat down under a broom tree and prayed that he might die. He said, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life, for I'm no better than my father's. Elijah's tank was empty. He got to that place where even a a threat by Jezebel, this woman who was stirring up trouble, even that threat caused him to run in fear. So I want us to look at Elijah's depression, his despair today. First of all, look at four factors that led to that in his life and then some ways that God brought healing to Elijah. First factor, and by the way, we all stumble in life, right? In, in life's journey, you're going to be walking along and there's going to be a, a hole, a pothole, a trench maybe, and we're going to stumble. So the truth of Elijah's life should be applicable to all of us today. Number one, the first factor leading to depression. He was depleted from challenges. Depleted from the challenges. Verse one Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done. And we need to 
We need to back up and remember everything Elijah had done. Remember, God called him to go to Ahab and make this bold proclamation to Ahab that there's going to be a drought in the land because of the idolatry of Ahab, the wicked king. And he challenged Ahab and he challenged the, the pagan idolatry of Baal. And then God did a work in a, Elijah's life and used him. Remember how God provided him at that brook at Kareth and then and used Elijah to, to raise the, the widow's son. We have the story of a, Elijah at Mount Carmel where he challenged the children of Israel to show up and make a decision. He, all the 450 prophets of Baal came there and he challenged the prophets of Baal and the people of God and he said, let's see who God really is and who you're going to follow. And he prayed and God answered and brought fire from heaven to consume the altar. And then the Bible says that Elijah led in a, in a massacre of those prophets who were pagan. All of that bold, incredible event depleted Elijah. And I know that because after all of that, all Jezebel has to say is, I'm going to get you. Like I've gotten all these other prophets who are running and hiding. And he took off and he ran. The Bible says he ran all the way down to Beersheba, as far away as he could get and still be in the, the land of, of, of Israel. You need to understand that our most vulnerable moments often come right after a spiritual victory. Elijah was on the mountaintop at Carmel. He said, God, if you're God, and we know you are, answer by fire. And God did. He was the man of the hour. A spiritual victory. I remember when I was a pretty new Christian, God used me and a friend to lead a, a young man to Christ who was coming to a small group Bible study. We went to his house and shared Christ with him. And I've told you all that story before, how we did everything wrong. We had five or six different gospel tracks and tried to jump from one page to another. And, and we presented the gospel to this guy named Dave. And I was so excited. I said, Dave, after probably 30 minutes of my friend and I doing tag team on him, I said, Dave, what do you think? And I just knew he was going to say, I think I need Jesus. You know what Dave said? He said, I'm going to be late for work if I don't get out of here. Yeah, that isn't what I wanted to hear. But the very next weekend at church, Dave stood up and walked the aisle and received Christ as Savior. I was on the mountaintop. The first time I'd ever shared Christ with anyone. The first time. And this guy got saved and I was so excited. And the very next, really it was that afternoon, I just felt this black cloud in my life. And for the days and weeks that followed, I was in, I didn't know it, but at, at that point, in, in a place of darkness, despair. And I thought, Lord, I don't understand this. I'm following you, and I've been obedient to your word, and I shared the gospel. And this guy got saved. Why am I in the pits now? Why, why am I having trouble even praying? I think the same thing happened to me that happened to Elijah. After this spiritual victory, we have this sense of we can conquer the world. And I think the enemy says, no, you can't. And he takes you down a notch. I think sometimes the Lord might even step in and say, you need to be humbled, buddy. You didn't do that. I did. Depleted from the challenges. Runners who run marathons. I are not one. But I hear from those guys that when you run that 26.2 mile marathon at 20 miles, you hit the wall. And your body is depleted because it's burned up all the energy that's there. They describe it as the effect of an elephant sitting on your shoulders. And you have to run that next six miles with an elephant on your shoulders. It's the wall, they call it. Like carrying an elephant the rest of the way at the journey. They hit the wall. That's where Elijah was, I believe. Not dehydrated and all the, the, the carbs burned up like a marathon runner, but 
depleted from the challenges of his life. No doubt it was a challenge to confront Ahab, to confront the prophets. That's where Elijah was depleted. Second evidence or the second factor that leads to depression, deceived by emotions. Elijah was deceived by his emotions. Look at verse 2. So Jezebel sent a messenger saying, may the gods punish me and do so severely if I don't make your life like the one of them by this time tomorrow. In other words, Elijah, I want you dead. And I, I, I'm, she's, she's making a vow that he be executed. By the way, they'd been chasing Elijah and all the other prophets all through this time of this, the drought. Verse 3, then Elijah became afraid and immediately ran for his life. What's Elijah trusting in there? His emotions. He didn't feel on the mountaintop anymore, so fear grips this man of God. Remember, the title of our series is Ordinary Man, Extraordinary Plan. God still has this extraordinary plan, but Elijah's just a man. He's human. I've been reminded of that lately. I'm just human. And the emotions begin to take over. Fear overcame him. I was reading, I've done a lot of reading this this last month or so. Mother Teresa has has so many statements about this term she called the darkness in her life. This This great woman of God who made such an impact, she called the darkness. She said, this darkness is such that I really do not see, neither with my mind nor with my reason. The place of God in my soul is blank. She said, the pain of longing is so great just to to see God again. She describes it as torture and pain. That's that's being deceived by emotions. That's trusting in how you feel. Folks, that will mess you up every time. That will mess you up when you trust in your emotions. Elijah did. The third factor that leads to depression, distance from people. Distance from people. Verse 3, he became afraid and he ran for his life. The Bible says he came to Beersheba, as far south as he could go, that belonged to Judah, and he left his servant there. He, He left the people who were in his life that could have been an encouragement to him and ran. And then he sits down and says, I've had enough, Lord, take my life. Distance from people who can help you. And we said earlier, as we were talking about, remember when Elijah was called by God to go to the brook of Kareth, and God called him out to that place. He wasn't running. He was following God in obedience. And he he got to a place of isolation. I believe here initially what is happening with Elijah is he's not going for solitude. He's going for isolation. I just want to get away from people. So isolation is avoiding contact with people. Solitude is choosing to have time alone with God. There's a difference. He was just wanting to get away. Have you ever been there? I just don't want to talk to anybody right now. And the very people God puts around you in your life to help you, you don't even want to see them. Distance. It's not good. That's a scary place to be. Because the enemy can really do a work there. Number four, the fourth factor that leads to depression. A distorted view of self a distorted view of self look at verse 4 again he went on a day's journey into the wilderness he sat down under a broom tree and prayed that he might die he said I've had enough you ever told God that God I've had enough take my life for I'm no better than my father's I'm no better than those others who had not followed the Lord 
a distorted view of who he was. I was just looking through scripture. Moses asked God that he would die. Remember that? He was so burdened about the people. Jonah, after this great victory in Nineveh, when the people turned to God, wanted to die. Paul, even in 1 Corinthians, said, I I despaired of my very own life. Giants throughout history, Abraham Lincoln got to those places where he had a distorted view of his life and wanted to die. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers who's ever lived, fought with that constantly. This depression and this distorted view of life that he just wished, a view of self that he just wished he could die because his life wasn't worth anything. Let me tell you something, that's a lie of the enemy. To tell you you're not worth anything, you might as well just stop. You are valued, you are precious, you are loved by God. Well, I read a couple of weeks ago a news report about a Houston pastor. He pastored in the Dallas area when I was up there, a fellow colleague. It broke my heart. It said he had passed away, and I'm reading the story. And his son-in-law says, pray for the family. This pastor, Phil, lost a battle with depression and took his own life. He'd been on medical leave for several months and just lost the battle. 48 years in ministry. Distorted view. I think we have not willingly and knowingly and wanted to preach this gospel that if you receive Christ, you're never going to have a struggle. It's not true. I like what David Roper calls it. He calls it folk Christianity. Folk Christianity where you never get sick. Everybody's a winner. No one gets cancer. Nobody falls short. Nobody's marriage fails. Nobody has mental illness. Everybody lives happily ever after. That's folk Christianity. By the way, in Christ you do live ever after happily, but not right now. I like what Fred Smith said. He said, everything is possible with God, even failure. So Elijah found himself in that place, a godly man used of God, just depleted in despair. Let's look at the good part now, all right? Number, the, the next section, four prescriptions for healing. Four prescriptions for healing. And there are more than four, but I just chose four out of this passage that I saw. Look at verse five. Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. After he says, I'm done, I want to quit, God take my life, he laid down and slept under the broom tree. And suddenly an angel touched him, and the angel told him, get up and eat. And then he looked, and there was at his head a loaf of bread baked over some hot stones and a jug of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. First prescription for healing is rest. Rest. Don't minimize how important rest is. I think it's so interesting that Elijah takes a nap and God sends an angel to feed him and then says, go ahead and take another nap. Yeah, amen. There's a place to amen, right? <laughs> Why is it when you're, little, when you're little, you don't want to take a nap and when you get old, you can't and you want to? The angel didn't say, shame on you, Elijah. He said, here, eat something. Get some rest. Ruth Barton, in Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership, Strengthening the Soul, said this, one of the most important rhythms of a leader's life 
is a constant back and forth motion between times when we're engaged in the battle, giving our best energy to, 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 the next, to take the next hill, a time to retreat when we're not on and we don't have to be any particular way for anyone, time when we can be in God's presence for our own soul's sake. Boy, I like that. That just resonated with me. This, this ebb and flow, there's the battle, but then there's the time to, to step back. Richard Swenson has written a book called Margin, and he talks about the fact that, that where the health in life is, when the, when the soul can be nurtured, it's in the, the white spaces, the margin in your life. And I don't know if anybody else is guilty of this, but in my word processing program, I, I make the margins as small as I can to get more text on the page. I bump that top margin and the bottom margin and the left margin and the right margin because I want more text on the page. And, and do you know that when you get rid of the margin, the text just takes over? Margin's important, and Swenson said it's important in our life to have that space to rest. I went to use my wheelbarrow recently to move some stuff around in the yard, and it's been sitting in the garage, and I thought it was just waiting for me. And I got out the wheelbarrow, and it looked good, and I rolled it, and then I put the stuff in it, and it wouldn't roll because the tire was deflated. I don't know what it is about tires and wheelbarrows, but you got to keep putting air in those things. We need to stop and pause and rest like Elijah did. Secondly, second prescription is just reconnect with God. Reconnect with God. By the way, in verse 7, the angel reminds him that he's about to take a journey. Verse 8 says, so he got up, he ate and drank. Then on the strength from that food, he walked 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. We also call it Mount Sinai. Anything important happen there? (laughs) Isn't that, that's just so interesting, the place where God spoke. And he entered into a cave there and spent the night. The word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, God knew what he was doing there. I think about in, in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. Do you remember what God said to Adam? Adam, where are you? God knew where he was. All Adam needed to realize is where he was. And that's what I believe God is doing here. Elijah, what are you doing here? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they're looking to take my life. I don't know if that's the way he said it, but wine. Then he said, go out and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. And at that moment, the Lord passed by. In other words, Elijah, get out of the cave, get out of the dark, step into the light. At that moment, the Lord passed by and a great and mighty wind was tearing at the mountains and was shattering cliffs before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. This is like the most... Hurricane force wind you can imagine because it's shaking the rocks off the mountain. That's pretty strong wind. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. Elijah knew about the Lord being in the fire, didn't he? He just experienced that at Carmel. And after the fire, there was a voice, a soft whisper When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in the mantle and covered his eyes up. Does that sound familiar? Just like Moses. 
And he went and stood at the entrance of the cave, and suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Same question. Same question. I believe in that moment, Elijah is reconnecting with God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God who, who does move, the God who does shake, the God who does rattle. So many um, statements and, and uh, conjectures have been made about this passage, what was going on, what was God doing. I, one thing I liked was that, that maybe Elijah was expecting God to really rattle him with all the events. And God chose not to. God chose to really get a hold of his heart in that whisper. We tend to expect God to speak a certain way. And we miss what he really wants to say to us. We talked about that last week. Amy Carmichael, a missionary to India in the 1900s, early 1900s, was there 50 years. She said, God always answers us in the deeps, never in the shallows of our soul. Folks, that's where Elijah was. He wasn't just going through the motions, la-di-da, good to be in church, happy Jesus day. He was in despair, broken. And he's at the place of God and God speaks. God meets him in the deeps and spoke. Read a story about a two-year-old girl named Carrie. She wasn't eating her food and her mom said, Carrie, eat your food. She wouldn't. She said, why aren't you eating? And Carrie said, God told me not to eat. And mom said, "Uh, Carrie, I don't think God would tell you not to eat. And Carrie said, well, then maybe it was Moses that told me not to eat. (laughs) We need to be sensitive enough to hear his voice. And I don't know about you, but I know about me. It's in those moments of despair and brokenness, depression even, where you're just in tune and sensitive. Third prescription is to re-enter. Re-enter. Re-enter whatever God has called you to do, to be, to serve, to do ministry. Look at verse 14. He says, after he says, what are you doing here? He says again, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and, I've, and killed your prophets with a sword. I alone am left. They're looking to take my life. And I don't know if he was whining by this point, but he might have really been explaining it to God. Then the Lord said to him, go and return by the way you came to the wilderness, to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you are to anoint Hazael, king of Aram. And he goes on to tell him some other things that you're going to be doing. I need you, Elijah. I need you to re-enter as a prophet and do what I've called you to do. I love a quote by John Acuff. He says, God found Gideon in a hole. He found Joseph in a prison. He found Daniel in a lion's den. He has a curious habit of showing up in the midst of trouble, not in the absence of it. Where the world sees failure, God sees future. The next time you feel unqualified to be used by God, remember this. He tends to recruit from the pit, not from the pedestal. Good words. Re-enter. I read about, you've heard the hymn, There is a Fountain. We've sung it before. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. One of the greatest hymns of our faith, written by William Cowper back in the late 1700s. Cowper had recurring mental illness fits of depression, attempts of suicide, yet God caused him periodically to re-enter the ministry 
of writing hymns. That's what God calls Elijah to do. God, get busy. Serve someone else. Number four, the fourth prescription, reestablish relationships. I'm not going to read all of this, but in verse 19, by the way, I'm I'm skipping a little bit, but in verse 18, Elijah's reminded there are 7,000 in Israel who haven't bowed the knee. You're not really alone, Elijah. Verse 19 says, Elijah left there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, as he was plowing. Twelve teams of oxen were in front of him, and he was with the twelve team. And Elijah walked by him and threw his mantle over him. He calls Elisha to join him. Look with me at verse 21. At the very end of verse 21, the Bible says, Elisha left and followed Elijah and served him. One of the most important prescriptions for getting out of depression and despair is to re-engage, to re-establish relationships. God gave Elisha to him to be someone who can encourage him. I was listening to a song by Plum this week on the radio. It's okay to not be okay. This is a safe place. This is a safe place. Don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed. I thought that should be, and I think it is the motto of our church. Listen, it's okay not to be okay. Folks, if everybody's okay, what do we need to be here? What's the point? Let's we'll go be with Jesus. It's okay not to be okay in this place. It's, it's okay to, to come around other godly Christian people and people who are struggling and say, I'm struggling too. Be here for me. Will you be a safe place? That's what we have found at Coastal Oaks. For warning factors that bring us to depression and for prescriptions. About three months ago, I hit the wall. I got to the place where Elijah is. In fact, that's why I went to this study in 1 Kings. As I was struggling through this time, I thought, I I just need to go to the Word and find where, God, you walk somebody through this, and I need you to walk me through it. And that's, that's the... The fruit of the, the, these sermons are the fruit of that study. My tank was empty. I like what Wayne Cordero said. He said, Those whose vocation is all about giving out are wearing out. I found myself there. Ruth Barton again said, It's possible to gain the whole world of ministry success and lose your own soul in the midst of it all. The soul, the who I am, had come to a place of emptiness. Lance Witt says the seduction of leadership, the grind of ministry, the brokenness of our culture, and the pace of the 21st century can create an environment in which it is very challenging to stay healthy at the soul level. I believe that. I got out Wayne Cordero's book called Leading on Empty. By the way, if you want to understand what I've been through, if you want to understand why I'm where I am, read his book, Leading on Empty. In it, he has this list that says you may be in the early stages of burnout if. Let me read this list. I just picked four. I read this to our leadership team a a month or so ago. You may be in the early stages of burnout if one year in solitary confinement sounds like a good deal. You may be in the early stages of burnout when spending time with your mother-in-law begins to be more inviting than going to work. You may be in the stages of burnout when you realize you're in this ministry for life, which is funny because you feel like you no longer have one. 
My favorite is you may be in the stages of burnout when you think it would be good to work at McDonald's because it would be nice to see something more fried than you feel. You know, I, I read a, a real list of warning signs out of this book, and I thought, I think I might have some of those. And so I sat down with Kelly, and I said, Kelly, listen to this list. Sense of hopelessness, frequent tears, difficulty concentrating, difficulty making decisions, irritability, insomnia, lowered activity levels, feeling alone. I said, babe, you think I might have some of those? She said, Kevin, you've got just about all of those. Cordero says in his book that many pastors at 20 years seem to hit a wall, just like running a marathon. It just seems to be happening that way. And I'm at 20 years at this church. And as I read those statistics, I started to cringe because I found myself on the verge of becoming one instead of just reading about the statistic. As a pastor, I'm wired to fix things. That's just what I do. I want to fix people's lives. And I got to this place where I couldn't fix this. It was scary. You know, when you've always been able to fix it and you can't, I couldn't get a handle on it. So I began to share my my struggle with, I shared with Kelly. I shared with our grace group, our small group that meets in our home that I don't even lead. It's just we just host and I I shared with our grace group. I said, y'all, this is where I am. Pray for me. Boy, they put their hands on me. They prayed over me. I shared this with our deacons, and those guys came alongside me and loved me and encouraged me. With our staff, they did the same, our leadership team. And I, I went to a Christian counselor, and I said, this is what I see happening in my life. And he affirmed, yeah, you're, you're there. You need a break. So I said to the deacons and the staff and leadership, I said, I, I've got to get away. And I took a week to go to the Frio River let me tell you how it was that week. I was, I was afraid to be alone for a week. I was that low. So I arranged to be alone for three days and have Kelly come join me at the end of that. I think it was a wise choice because that first couple of days were dark. I've shared with our leadership that I just felt the enemy oppressing me that day, those couple of days. I made a decision also as I went Kelly's advice to me, she's very wise. She said, why don't you not go and try to read a bunch of books like you always do? Why don't you just go and be? And that's what I did. I made a decision. I was driving up to Lakey. I'm just going to talk out loud to the Lord. And so I talked out loud to God the whole time, just like I'm talking to you right now. And I walked and I walked and I walked. My counselor said, that's one of your best therapies, just walk. I walked and I talked to the Lord. I sang I made up stupid songs. I'd be embarrassed to sing some of those for you. But I got to the place in that those those couple of days of darkness where I I just my prayers just I had I said all I could say. So I just started singing. God, I need answers. I I I just want to be with you. I'm just gonna be with you. And I would sing over and over, Jesus, Jesus, just I and I was singing that that song, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Sweetest name I know fills my every longing, keeps me singing as I go. And I was just singing that and praying and walking. And I saw, you know, I'm singing the chorus of that song. I might as well sing the verse. And the verse goes like this. There's within my heart a melody 
Jesus whispers sweet and low. Well, this is all I got out. There's within my heart. And I could not sing a melody. And God just impressed right there. Kevin, you've lost your song. Man, that was hard. I could not sing. Here I'm the pastor. I could not sing about the joy of Jesus at that moment. It wasn't there. And I broke and I wept and I cried and I wept and I'm walking across this field that somebody had mowed a path across this field of tall grass for no reason except for me. And I got in the middle of this field, this path, and there's a stone in the middle of it and I stopped and it's like God said, it's okay, Kevin, I'm, I'm right here for you. And I, that, that was my, my, my marker. By the way, I dug that stone up and brought it home. Later in the week when Kelly came, I took her to that place and I said, this is where I just, I just broke and I just said, God, I, I need my joy back. And she said, this is holy ground, isn't it? I said, you're right, it is. At the end of the week before we came home, I went down to the river. Boy, the Frio River is beautiful. There's a little waterfall on the property there, big, deep place. And I took a stone and I carried it down there and I wrote on that stone, all the stuff I'd been carrying. I, I, I'm just going to tell you, I wrote on there, Coastal Oaks Church. And I threw you all in the river. Sorry. <laughs> hey, I wrote some of your names on there too. But I didn't write that down to say, this is a burden. I, I don't like this. I, I, I realize I'm trying to carry this by myself, and I can't. And God said, it's okay. Give it to me. And so I just, in the river. And I let it go. And I'm not over this, but I'm a long way from where I was. One of the things that my counselor shared and several people in leadership has said, Kevin, you, you need to take a sabbatical. And our church has provision for a, a, about a month's sabbatical to get away. And, and, and you know, there's, I've been here 20 years, and we've talked about that over the taking extended time, and I just, just couldn't leave. But I got to the place where I said, it's okay. It'll be all right. So in July, I'm going to take a sabbatical. So he said, what is that? That's a time where you rest and reconnect with God. I'm going to spend time with my family. I'm going to spend time in prayer. I've already got some journals that are going to help me walk through it. Just restore my soul. Just to press the pause button. I've never done that in an extended period of time. So now you know what's going to happen. Several people have said, Pastor, what are we going to do without you? It's going to be great. I really believe that this is going to be as good for this church as it's going to be for me. You're going to realize that you really don't need me. I mean, really. You're going to realize that this is God's church, and it doesn't revolve around this guy right here. I'm looking forward to what God's going to do during July. Let me just close with this. I've, I've shared this often but it just fits to tie all this together. Because I don't know where you are, but you could be where I was 
or where I am. This is Larry Crabb, an author that I I love what he writes in the book called The Pressure's Off. He tells about a childhood experience. I'm just going to read it to you. He says, one Saturday afternoon, I decided I was a big boy and could use the bathroom without anyone's help. So I climbed the stairs and I closed and locked the door behind me. And for the next few minutes, I felt very self-sufficient. Then it was time to leave. And I couldn't unlock the door. I tried with every ounce of my three-year-old strength, but I couldn't do it. I panicked. I felt again like a very little boy and thoughts went through my head that I might spend the rest of my life in this bathroom. My parents and likely the neighbors heard my desperate screams. Are you okay? Mother shouted through the door that she couldn't open from the outside. Did you fall? Did you hit your head? Sounds like mom, doesn't it? I can't unlock the door, I yelled. Get me out of here. He says, I wasn't aware of it right then, but dad had raced down the stairs, ran to the garage to find the ladder, hauled it off the hooks, leaned it up against the side of the house just beneath the bedroom window. And with adult strength, he pried it open. Then he climbed into my prison, walked past me, and with the same strength, turned the lock and opened the door. Thanks, dad, I said, and I ran out to play. That's how I thought the Christian life was supposed to work. When I get stuck in a tight place, I should do all I can to free myself, and when I can, I should pray. Then God shows up, he hears my cry, get me out of here, I want to play. He unlocks the door, and the blessings are given to me. Sometimes he does, but now, no longer three years old and approaching 60, I'm realizing the Christian life doesn't work that way. And I wonder, are any of us content with God? Do we even like him when he doesn't open the door that we want to be opened? When the marriage doesn't heal, when rebellious kids still rebel, when friends betray, when financial uh, reverses threaten our comfortable way of life, when the prospect of terrorism looms, when the health worsens despite much prayer, when loneliness intensifies, depression deepens, when ministries die, and I'll add, when you hit burnout... God has climbed through the small window into my dark room. He doesn't just walk by me, turn the lock that I couldn't budge. Instead, he sits down on the bathroom floor and says, come sit with me. He seems to think that climbing into the room to be with me matters more than letting me go out to play. I don't always see it that way. Get me out of here, I scream. If you love me, unlock the door. Dear friends, the choice is ours. Either we keep asking him to give us what we think will make us happy, to escape our dark room and run to the playground of blessings, or we accept his invitation to sit with him for now, perhaps in darkness, to seize the opportunity to know him better and represent him well to this difficult world. Folks, God climbed in the bathroom window and sat with me. And he'll do the same for you. Let's pray together.